So maybe then what I'll do, because I don't want to lose precious time, because today I actually um, have twice as much material. Last week I was focusing on cultural impact. Today I'm going to briefly go over the psychological aspect and then you know, wrap it up together with uh, the theological perspective. So for me, the integration is the uh, culture and psychology and theology all together so that we have more holistic view of what it means to be human, right? Um, so I, I was going to show you the um, Jorla Club clips to talk a little bit about how trauma... Um, I don't have a clicker. I'm sorry. Um, uh, sorry. So in terms of the trauma, emotion, and memory, uh, this is an area that I deal with a lot uh, in working with uh, clinical population. And because we were talking about culture and especially multi-generational, right, with our parents. Oh, is there a clicker here? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, what do I do? What? Okay, okay. So we'll come back to the vid video if we have a sound. Uh, for now, what's going on? <laughs> they were just technologically challenged. <laughs> All right. Are we really feeling the absence of Julia? Was it Julia who was helping me last week? <laughs> Poor guys are going to feel more pressure now. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So, um, so I'm going to focus on trauma, emotion, and memory, and why it is important for us to pay attention to the emotion. Because you know we grew up in a culture where probably emotion isn't talked about very much, right? Um, so I hope this will enlighten a little bit why emotion is important. It's not clicking. <laughs> it's. Do you, do you know? I think it's kind of frozen. Uh. So there's a lot of you know research going on now with the neuroscience. So I'm going to give you a really quick summary. We think that now there's at least two major parts to our brain, um, the left and right. And for most of you who are right-handers, that means it crosses over your neck and your left side is your language brain. So that's the analytical side. So this is what we typically think of as rational brain. Okay? So as soon as children learn language, they develop cognitive you know, faculty so that they can think logically and rationally. So this is the part we do math and linguistic analysis and so forth. The right side of the brain, the opposite side, is where emotion, uh, metaphor, imagery, right, uh, you know, things like that is processed. So we think of this as an explicit brain and this is the implicit brain, emotion, cognition, right? The thing that is really interesting about the emotional brain is that emotion processes information twice as fast as cognition. Now, they're bo both fast. I mean, they're like a millisecond processing. But this side, the emotional side, is twice as fast. So what that means is that when we are processing emotion, often we're not aware because it's automatic. 
So you, know, you guys have to really slow down and pause to get in touch with what am I really feeling, right? So most of them, you're just busy thinking and making decisions, right? So this is a part you're aware. But, but I wanted to help you become you know, more sensitive or at least attend to the fact there is the whole other side of the brain that we're not attending to since we have become more adult. But we know that when children are born, they, are not without, they don't have the language, right? This side is developing with the language. That means when we are born, we're primarily processing only from the emotion. Makes sense, right? So the first 18 months of our life is actually processing primarily emotion. And this is how we're learning. So babies are learning about self, other, and the world. We know that children, um, when they come into the world, uh, all the neurons they will ever use is coming in that package. So it's a little bit like the Lego I described last time, all the chips. But what helps these you know, Lego chips, if you will, the neurons to connect together is the relationship. So connection, the attachment between primary caregiver and the infant. It's the relationship that is the context within which these you know, neurons are connecting, and it's the emotion the baby is absorbing to connect. So emotion is like the glue that's connecting these Lego chips or the neuronal connection. So by the time they have language, you know, they really literally have gone from dirt road to uh, super freeway. That's what the language allows. But it doesn't mean when the language come in, it doesn't mean that the emotion stopped. This brain continues. So that means in the beginning, the baby's learning about self, other, and the world without the language. They're picking it up, of course, from the adults, but they don't speak yet, right? So from the emotional brain, they're absorbing everything, and they develop. That part do not disappear, but on top of it, the language come in at two, right? And then it goes like that. Um, so that's important for you to keep in mind. And then next slide... Okay, so if you think about these two brain processing, um, you know, if you think about the infants, especially if you had a baby, right? In the in the beginning, babies learning everything through sensation, right? They put everything through their mouth because this motor uh, oral area is most sensitive, sensory. So that means that not only through emotion but through body. So, uh, you know, Piaget, who did the cognitive development for children, observed it, and he noted how the infant in the first year to two, learning about everything around, you know, their surrounding through exploration of the oral area, right? So through their mouth, because this is the most sensitive area. So sensory and emotion was a primary uh, vehicle through which we learned about the world in the first three years. And then from a, a you know, clinical uh, theory, they consider the self develops in the first three years. So, you know, we have a better understanding of who I am already by three, by all these neurons connected together through the primary attachment of caregivers and emotion. Okay. So then what happens, I want you to kind of picture this. Apart from the fact that we have, you know, cognitive brain and then emotional brain, the emotional part, because we keep, you know, learning language, right, what is kind of at the tip of the iceberg, as Freud talked about, what we think of as conscious, that's the part where we can verbalize. This is the explicit, right, side of the brain. While beneath it is the emotion that we don't pay attention to. Not only that, as children, we learn very quickly. If you cry, don't cry. Don't be a crybaby, <laughs> right? 
So we were taught, don't be sad, don't be mad, right? So we repress all those emotions. We learn the only thing that's acceptable is just be happy. Especially when you come to church, you have to be happy. You can't be gloomy, right? So all the sad emotion or frustration, anger, all of that just went below, right? But that makes majority of the aspect that, that is implicit, right, underneath. And emotional brain, because it's processing much faster, we're not attending to them. Based on my years and years of working with clients, what I find um, is that it's actually the integration of the two brain. I would consider that as wisdom. So you have to kind of think about it. God doesn't make any mistake. He doesn't give us, you know, if we could just operate only from the rational brain, he would have not given us the emotion. But he gave both. We need both to work together. I know this because I have some clients who have complete split. So much so that they have no awareness of their emotion. Do you know what happens when you don't have feelings? <laughs> I have a clients who have no idea what they want. Don't know what they need. Our, our feelings, children learn the basic needs of what they feel, what they need, through all, all that emotion. So when you repress all that emotion, it's difficult to know, what do I need? the basic needs. So literally, I had a woman in her 30s, for example, who um, was depressed. She knew she was going through a lot of oppression in her um, you know, work context, but she couldn't figure out what she wanted to do. And it took literally three months for her in therapy to work on reintegrating her emotion. And you know, it took that long. And she was very frustrated, like, when am I going to know, doc, what I feel? <laughs> But it came. I mean, she started in September. By December, she was starting to feel. And you know what it looked like initially? She said, I feel like a zombie. You know, I can't concentrate. I cannot focus. It's like she was mad at first at me, right? I, I used to be so efficient. <laughs> I cannot be efficient anymore. So this is why we have relied on, so heavily on the rational brain. Because we have to think and we have to make decisions. We just work, 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 right? But the emotion, we just we repress it and consider it inconvenient. But when we have to make these major decisions, we realize we can't do without. This helps us to know what's going on, right? It's, it's almost like a, um, uh, the neurons on our hand. You know, if we didn't have this, you could put your hand on the stove, and you will not know that it's burning. You know, like a Pinocchio's leg? It's wooden. It doesn't have feeling. That's what it's like. So if we didn't have emotion, we would know that somebody is saying something that is really negative and injuring us, right? So if we were not attuned, we would know that, right, somebody's making sly comments. I mean, we could kind of detect it when they're really obvious, but I mean, it's the emotional detection that allows us to know something is off here, right? So you could see the value of emotion. Um, also in communication, I think last time I said just briefly, the language part, you know, uh, of our communication is only 7%. 93% of our communication is nonverbal. So we talk about facial, you know, uh, expression, our body language. Those are all nonverbal. The tone of our voice, all that 93% made up of nonverbal is connected to the 7% of the word to make 100% communication. So what happened? Nonverbal is really capturing our emotion. Right? So if I said, like, I love you, <laughs> you don't believe me, right? 
So how many couples get in a fight and they're angry and they're like, pretend like I'm really, yeah? <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the question. <laughs> Esther, yeah? <laughs> Great, Esther, you have awareness. <laughs> Which is not actually easy to do, because in Korean culture, uh, because it's collectivistic, we were taught to value harmony more than self-expression. You know, you have to be in an individualistic culture to say, express yourself, right? Now in the Asian culture, all the pop, you know, singers and everything, they're trying to push that, because we're not really like that, right? The culture is changing. But if you think about it, in the, what, what it means to be collective meant for the good of others, the collective, I would right hold back my feelings because I'm going to value the harmony of the group above self. So in the individualistic culture, we emphasize self-expression, right? I'm trying to encourage even children to, you know, tell me what you feel. Give me your choice. We didn't grow up like that. <laughs> you eat what was given, right? I don't run a restaurant. What do you think I am? <laughs> So it's a very different way of socializing children. You understand, right? Okay. So um, we know that emotion is valuable. Oh, okay. Ah, sorry. Ah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm rushing back here. Okay. So this is to just say, I work with many clients who have trauma. And how the trauma, emotion, and memory work is like this. You have a traumatic situation. Um, what happens is that in order for you to survive in that context, your, uh, the, the cognitive part of your brain that is consciously processing sort of stops. And your emotion has to, you know, like act in order to, you know, so we call it fight, flight, or, you know, um, what, uh, freeze. But that's just a survival kind of mentality. So in a traumatic situation, you're trying to just be most efficient in order to survive. And that's how, if you saw like a tiger or a lion come, you don't have time to think. If you think, you're already eaten, right? You just have to react. You just have to run as fast as you can or pretend you're dead and they will leave you alone, right? So that's a kind of really quick, like instinctive decision you have to make. So in traumatic situation, your brain that is takes longer to process is stop, right? You know, and so emotion is kind of like act in that situation, but you don't really have chance to really process two brains together. So what happened in, for most clients in a traumatic situation, their emotion and all that memory just kind of gets frozen, right? Because in order for us to kind of function, um, like for example, children who are abused as kids, if they were constantly thinking about it, they wouldn't be able to function. So what do they do? They shut down that part of it, was buried, so that you could just function up here. Go to school, deal with everyday work. And you become an adult, that memory is just buried. So I have a 60-year-old, you know, woman who's, you know, coming to see me right now, where traumatic memory was there as a child, but she's now 60, but she didn't know why suddenly she was having, you know, like, a phobia and panic, you know, kind of experience. So symptom was showing up here, right? But in order for me to start work on what the symptom was telling me, right, telling her, I had to start going in and um, process some of her earlier memory. So the emotion and memory, by the way, in our human brain, kind of sits in the midbrain. Mid so this part is the uh, neocortex. This is a hindbrain. This midbrain is where emotion and memory 
uh, structure lie. Hippocampus and limbic system is right here. That's where emotion is, right? And the memory sits right underneath. So this is why when there's like a traumatic experience, you know, kind of emotion and the memory together kind of went down, right? Repressed underneath. The cognitive faculty now have to just function, make a rational decision and work, right? But when I, you know, area where I do my work is trying to reintegrate this forgotten memory and emotion and reprocess. The reason for that is we need the two brain to work together, right? So that, say that if you had a trauma from a childhood, you're developmentally, even cognitively, kind of stuck there, right? If you think about it, children are egocentric. And how do I know that? When I work, used to work with kids, when parents divorce, from an egocentric perspective, kids blame themselves. So even though parents are fighting and they end up divorcing, the child, when I'm doing therapy with them, they would say, you know, if I was just smarter, if I was just, you know, prettier, if I was just more athletic, my daddy would not have left me. So even the parents are arguing, the child from, you know, his or her own perspective, blame, right, egocentric kind of way. But if you never reprocess that, you kind of hold on to that memory and that understanding and take into the world. And so forever, as even as adult, in other relational contexts, they think people that are in relationship is abandoning them because they're not prettier, smarter, or athletic. Does it make sense? So it's like these unprocessed memory from childhood, and that, you know, because you have kind of limited ability to process and understand, it's kind of stuck there. So it is important to reprocess uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, unprocessed memory or trauma is unstable. So uh, when you see like soldiers who fought in, uh, in the war context, when they come back to civilian you know, uh, society, if that, let's say that a bomb went off in Iraq and their friend died. So that's a very traumatic experience. But when they come back and they haven't really processed that tra trauma, what happens is that they're just kind of driving on a freeway and a car tire blew up. Bam, right? That sound re-triggers a memory of that bomb. The brain is not differentiating between the bomb and the car tire blowing up, right? And so that's a kind of, you know, so it's unstable memory. So we know that people with a PTSD are hypervigilant and they have all kind of acute sensory kind of state. And so these are all signs of uh, unstable memory and emotion. So in therapy, by talking, and talking helps the two brain to connect together. And hopefully somebody who's, you know, specialized and trained would be able to really facilitate processing through all the unsafe and traumatic you know, experiences and understanding and, you know, uh, having a new meaning is very, very important. So that's kind of a therapy in a nutshell. A lot of work I do in psychotherapy is reintegrating emotion and cognition to work together. That's a wise brain. And also to make the implicit explicit. That's psychotherapy in a nutshell. Okay. So why do we need to do this? If you're all convinced about that, I wanted to share with you a little bit of my own story. Uh, Actually, do we, do we have the video? Do you think it's working? No, it's not working? Okay, then let me just go ahead and just tell my story. <laughs> so, you know, now I'm going to try to integrate culture and psychology, okay? So the child in that picture is me. That's 10 when I left Korea. So um, right next to me is my mother. Uh, you know, this is before she had 
kids. It's very young and beautiful. <laughs> she got married um, and had children. And um, my maternal grandmother uh, helped, me, helped raise me because uh, my mom was working. So this is kind of a multi-generational transmission. And anyway, I talk a little bit about Han. So the Han of my grandma uh, and my mother is that my grandmother went through the Japanese occupation. And uh, she came from a very Confucian uh, literary family. So her brother is a poet. But I don't know if you know this about Confucianistic society. Women were not taught to read because they were afraid women would not do their job if they were overly educated. So even though her brother was a poet, she was never allowed to you know, read. So as an adult, she later taught herself to read. Um, my mother, so I think her Han was, you know, she's a child of Korean War. So she was only eight when the war broke out. And her memory, um, the only time she shared the story about Korean War is at eight when, you know, the, um, uh, the um, army was coming down from north. She had to flee, and there's uh, eight children in her, in her family. And so she was eight, so she had to carry a sack of rice and then, you know, walk all the way down to Busan with, you know, mom and all the little siblings and everything. Memory from that, her, she vowed that she will never go hungry again. Okay. So, so you got Hannah, my grandma, was like being a, that kind of gender issue about women, you know, not allowed to, right, equally educated, right? And then my mom going through the war um, and discover what it means to just survive, right? So that's kind of my DNA, <laughs> the Hannah of both. So my story begins here. I, I um, was born into both my maternal and paternal uh, side, very Confucianistic. And if you know anything about Confucianism, uh, men, I mean, boy is the hair, right? So it's very important to have a male child, and I'm the oldest. And I'm, I'm born in the ear of dragon. My paternal grandmother thought for sure I had to be a boy, okay? So much so that she even timed my birth so that, you know, when the dragon comes out, is at night. And in order for me to be the, like, big hero or whatever, she just, like, demanded the um, midwife time my birth for my mother. She nearly, my mother nearly died. I mean, she just, like, bled and everything, and they had to rush her to the hospital. Um, and then the story goes that my paternal, my paternal grandmother was so angry, she would not even let the maid pick me up and change diaper. So I would hear, you know, repeated stories of how, you know, you were rejected as a, because you were a girl. And then that repeats because my mother, for the first 10 years of marriage, she would just continuously have girls. <laughs> girls after girls after girls. It would take her 10 years for my brother to be finally born. And he's born on Christmas Eve. <laughs> You could you could just imagine the ego of my brother, right? <laughs> I'm the gift from God, right? <laughs> the sad story is that my mother uh, was never fully recognized as officially daughter-in-law by my paternal grandmother until son was produced. So that's the gender ideology that's embedded in the Confucianism. So what? How did it impact me? Uh, growing up, I think. I mean, it looks so adorable, right? <laughs> Growing up, I think already by five, I, I think I just 
just was angry that when like there'll be big family gathering, there'll be my Bowie cousins and all the men get to eat together and then women eat later. And I'm like, this is not fair. I didn't ask to be born as a girl. Why do I have to eat last, right? I want that meat just as everybody else, right? <laughs> and the way, the way I handled that rejection and devaluation was when I went to first grade. I was like serious, serious kid. Like I was going to beat all the boys, but I couldn't do that physically. So guess how I did it? Yeah. <laughs> so like I worked really hard. So like, you know, achieving academically was a way that I was going to show that I was more superior. So already in first grade, I was determined. And I thought, I'm going to make all those adults eat their word. I'm going to be worth more than three boys. Right? Making up for no sons until then. <laughs> okay. Well, this story doesn't end there. It continues. Oh. I'm not... <laughs> yeah. Can you help? Okay. So it, when we came to the United States, when I was 10, we were in uh, Central California. I, I, I think I shared there was no Asians around. Um, and boy, the reaction was just constant you know, racism, right? racial slur, just go home. And this is like, on television, the only thing that was showing up about Korea was MASH. And I used to hate that sitcom. Because <laughs> kids would come up to me and go like, do you know how to chew gum? And like, oh, I would just choke them, right? <laughs> Have you ever eaten ice cream? I'm like, what do you think I am? Like, you know? <laughs> So, you know, my way of fighting back all that racism was, once again, academically. So, I mean, I didn't know a word of English when I started school. Already by, you know, three years, I was in junior high, I was a valedictorian. And I was a valedictorian again in high school. Now, I don't tell you this because it's glorious, because it wasn't. I worked hard. Um, you know, when I was giving this valedictorian speech in junior high, I thought I finally redeemed myself. Like, kids would, you know, stop making fun of me. But, you know, that Asian girl, you know, she's just another human, right? No. They, as soon as I gave my speech and came down, I heard the kids saying things like, well, you know, she's like a computer. She's not human. Anybody can do that, you know, if she, she does nothing but study, right? So I went to high school thinking, I'm going to do everything everybody does, right? So I joined every club. You know, I was president. I did everything, right? Even, like, sports. I would just kind of show them. I, I could play their game and still succeed. So at 17, I'm giving my speech. I came down from that podium, right, in high school. Instead of feeling like I redeemed myself, I was just feeling completely flat, completely empty. I think I was burned out at 17, and maybe even a little depressed, thinking, gosh, is this what life is? I felt like a, literally like a little laboratory rat that's spinning the wheel. Because I was thinking, God, you know, I have to just keep going. Like, you know, I had to prove myself as a little girl in Korea, right, for all that gender discrimination. Here is the racial discrimination, and I had to just keep working and fighting. Like, when is this going to stop? So if you think about it, life is filled with all kinds of isms. And if I have to keep fighting my way, this is just no ending, right? So I'm like... What is the purpose of life and meaning? I was hit with existential kind of uh, search at 17, and that's when I think God decided to take hold of my, you know, miserable life. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it working? 
Okay. Do you do you want me to stop? It's okay. I'll just keep going then. I'll keep going. Okay. Okay. I'll just keep going then. So um, I have to say, what um, you know, my experience at at seventeen uh, when I met. Christ in a way that was most redemptive was recognizing that God really does have compassion for those who suffer. Remember how I talked about Koreans as a collective group has been suffering so much. There's all these Han, right? And I was carrying the Han of my grandmother, my mother, and my life story. And all that oppression combined, I, I just had already at 17, how can, can you imagine already at 17, I was bitter about life and the world with all kinds of injustice and unfairness. And that's when God took hold of me. And when I finally just grasped what it meant for him to create male and female in his image, and that we equally sinned and equally redeemed, that he died for me just as much as for any other boy, right? <laughs> That's the God, I believe. And so, you know, this is like the Rembrandt story of the prodigal son. I felt like that. I think the, the tethered clothes of that, you know, prodigal son was my emotional state. When I was completely burned out from all of my drivenness, trying to fight the world, and I was very broken, very, you know, empty. And I realized that the only way I was going to be restored was through his, um, his work. And I think, you know, understanding that he had equally died for me, I, that's, you know, like none other, my uh, self was restored. And I wish I could tell you that at that point, I had all the self-esteem in the world and everything was hunky-dory. But it wasn't. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So I was saved, and I was just so, you know, excited, and I was like, okay, you know, for the kingdom of God, I was, gonna will I was willing to give up everything and serve him, okay? Because I was a smart girl. If there's heaven, I'm putting all my treasures in heaven. Unfortunately, what I wanted to, you know, share with you today is that story doesn't just end with our salvation. I think in the evangelical faith, we focus so much on salvation, but we don't talk a lot about sanctification. You know, do you understand the difference? Salvation is a moment in which when we receive Christ in our life, that you know, we're, when we recognize we're sinners, we need our you know, Savior. And when you accept him, he comes into our lives, right? So that's the moment, the salvation. My journey you know, in redeemed and restored with Christ begins. But that was only the beginning, because I think for most of us, can we? Can I have a help? Next slide. <laughs> yeah. Most of us struggle with the the old self and the new self. You guys could all relate to that. So if I said the prodigal son, the tethered, poor, you know, was my emotional state, I think of many of my clients in their old self is like this rag, right? Korle, dirty rag. Even though Christ died that he would purify us, right? And they were redeemed. We don't really, we know it here in our head. We don't feel it here in our heart, right? So we know that our new self is like this, you know, like when you go to the you know, American house, there's a guest bath, bath, you know, bathroom, and they, they present the best, you know, unused towel, right? <laughs> the guest bathroom, right? The best stuff. 
And then, you know, you get the old stuff with all the church labels and the, and the, <laughs> the old bathroom. So it's just kind of a, you know, image that I, I want you to kind of think about the old self and the new self. So when we are saved, you know, we were given this new self, but all the, the, uh, you know, the part that is just buried underneath the implicit side that hasn't been really, right, worked through, that's, I think, the, the, all the life's journey as we work through sanctification. And so I think of sanctification as how we're growing more and more like Christ, right, um, after our relationship begins. Okay, let me just go ahead and finish up, and then I, I will, let's go to the next slide. So this is the situation. Um, I think most of us, I th- I, you know, when we were growing up, the old self and the new self, there's a conflict going on inside. Um, another way to substitute self is a will. My will, right, or God's will. Now, how many of our praise songs, like, you know, I'm a, um, he's a potter, I'm a clay. So again, we refer ourselves to the empty jar, right? Just fill me, fill me, as if, like, I should just decrease myself so that there's more of him. In fact, there is a scripture verse when John the Baptist says, more of him, less of me. Now, that's in the context of, you know, John the Baptist saying, I'm just like the one who came to, like, open the show, and here's a real guy, right? Real deals here. So that's what he's talking about. But we take that literally and go, more of him, less of me. Yeah. Have you guys done that? Well, you guys are smarter than I am, but I did, right? <laughs> that's, that was my mentality, like, when I first came to Christ. That I thought that just kind of being holy and just being focused on spiritual growth meant then all my human, right, fleshly way, that means everything about myself has to die and only the spiritual side should grow. That resulted in, I mean, one day I realized, it took many, many years for me to realize how wrong that was. And one just moment of like, I need to let go of this was uh, after I had given birth to my second child, I had this dream that my older, older uh, daughter and the, second, um, the younger daughter will just play violin, duet, right? Like, that was my idea of, like, I have succeeded as a parent. <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to make them musician, like, professional level, but just at church, you know, praise team. That would be beautiful, two of you doing duet and harmonies, right? That's great. My older daughter, more obedient, complied, and at least, you know, did the high school orchestra. My younger one was fighting me all the way. In junior high, I caught her just airbowing. <laughs> I was so mad. Like, I had to go to Suzuki lessons with her and I'm trying to help, right? Because they couldn't make any mistake. And she's airbowing. I was just like, about, I was just livid. So, like, can you just give me 15 minutes? Come on. All I ask is 15 minutes of practice. And she looked at me and she goes, Hey, mom, if you like it so much, you do it. <laughs> And I was like this close to saying, who taught you to say that? I didn't say it. I was smart enough to not say it, but I thought it. And that was a moment I was thinking, man, who raised her? Who raised her to have a self? Who raised her to be talking back to me? Right? It's almost like I wish she could be like this robot. You know, all this uh, robot stuff that's going on in Japan and all over the world, I was like, if my daughter was that obedient, <laughs> would just give me 50-minute practice without any fight. Now, what if we have this view in our relationship with God, that we're always coming to church, you know, 
deeply remorseful because my will and his will has been battling. And of course, I lost again, right? Because my willfulness. So when, I, when we used to do the college group, so many of the college students would come and ask, if, you know, God would just tell me who I should marry and what career, I would just do it. So I'm like, what happened to the fact that he gave you desire and thinking <laughs> uh, so that you could make decisions? <laughs> I'm like, no, it's just too hard. Just tell me what to do. And I used to tell you know, all the college students, God is not genie. He's not a fortune teller. You don't come and rub the lamp and it's like, is that going to be this way or that way? You already know God's will, and God's will is that you dwell in him. And then he said, what did he say? He promised that he will add everything else to you. But I think most of us have this view that who we are is bad, so that all our you know, fleshly, willful self should be all just killed off. There should be no self. There's 100% the Spirit of God. That means that, like we want to be the terminators. With God with the remote control from heaven, going program us and then you know push button and we'll just be 100% obedient do you think this is what God wants <laughs> no right so like I would love my daughter to give me 15 minute violin practice but I don't think I want a robotic daughter right so this kind of helped me to start rethink about what it is for us to do the will of God and uh, but it you know I'm telling you, like 20 years of journey for me to learn this lesson, apart from raising children. But even when I uh, went to my doctoral program at USC, prior to that, I literally thought to serve God, and I became a pastor's wife, right? I really literally thought I had to give up my, you know, before I met actually uh, my husband, I, when I was at UCLA, junior year, I prayed for gift of singlehood. I know. I was kind of radical. That you know, if Paul did not get married, I'm go I was going to be a Paulette. <laughs> and I said, well, if I'm going to do like evangelical work, I cannot be tied down in marriage or children. So, but I thought like I don't know if I'm going to be strong enough. So I went and prayed three months straight every morning at UCLA before I started class. I was doing quiet time and prayed, God, give me the gift of singlehood. I know only if you give me it as a gift, then I could do it. I didn't think that I was strong enough to do it, but if you give me this gift, I could do it. I literally prayed for three months, and one morning, okay, I heard his voice. Now, you think that this is like a, the, you know, Moses and the burning bush moment, it's not quite like that. It was really interesting because I, you know, I'm praying one way, right, one direction. <laughs> Suddenly, there's something like stirred up inside me, and I heard this voice that, why, Jenny, are you asking for a gift of singlehood? And I could not believe my answer. What came out of my mouth? I said, you know, if I could only serve you, why do I need to serve any man? Did you hear that? You know, all my prayer for three months is like, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to serve you, right? So give me this gift. Deep inside, like, this is my implicit unconscious. Remember my story of rejection for being a girl and how I fought on my gender inequality? So that was how, what was hiding underneath. I did not want to marry because I did not want to submit. Like no man was good enough to be submitted to. Only God. Hear my narcissism? <laughs> 
Only God is good enough. Well, make the longs are sure. Of course, you know, that moment, as uh, soon as I recognize, um, you know, what was going on inside, I surrender. I opened my palm and said, not my will, but thy will, Lord, right? Make the longs are sure. A year later, I met my husband and got married, right? So it was like right out of, you know, undergraduate. But as if like that was not enough, I really thought that God was going to, you know, not only say no marriage, no education, no self is what it meant to be really good, super Christian. Right? I was going to be super for God, so that's what I was thinking. The irony of my story is not only I got married, I had kids, and I ended up going to school all my life. I'm still stuck in school <laughs> 30 years later. So what do you think about that? Is it God who's going to just take things away from you? I mean, that's literally what my thought was. I was doing my darndest to give everything up, thinking that's what it meant for me to be 100% for God, to have no self, no desire, right? Nothing for me. I mean, literally at UCLA, I was going to just graduate, send my diploma to my parents, sell all my books, and I was going to be a missionary somewhere. Yeah? I don't know if God's oppositional or I am. What do you think? Because <laughs> I have not been able to leave Los Angeles. <laughs> the irony of my story, right? So I just turned my uh, first-generation Korean church into my mission field. <laughs> Missionary in my own backyard. So this is the moral of my story. So USC, doctoral program, my oldest was one. My husband, I was telling you during the, you know, while we were having the uh, meal, my husband, only thing he demanded when I was in grad school is a, another child. Like, how could you demand the hardest thing from me, another child? But I couldn't deny him that because he was so supportive. Like, you know, he didn't demand anything except another child, sibling for my oldest daughter. So I did have a second child in the middle of the program. And it was like two is radically different than one. Because after a second child was born, I could not do anything. I just, I stopped that track, right? I was stuck in the nest. And that's the, you know, <laughs> book that I used to read to my kids. And I feel like that's a picture of what I look like after my second child was born. I was in that nest, stuck, and I just waited for four years for my daughter to grow up. Every day, I pray for a perfect nanny. Because I'm thinking, God got me into USC, right? This is like 200 to 1 ratio. I won the lotto. I got there. He's providing my you know, tuition and all that. So like, why not perfect nanny? Every day I pray, no perfect nanny showed up. No Mary Poppins at the front door. So I'm like, I'm stubborn. Like, I'm not going to abandon my kid. So I'm just stuck there every single day praying for four years. So the moral of the story, 9-11 happened. Um, and I kid you not, two weeks after, my sister, actually, my younger sister was uh, living in New York at the time when 9-11 happened. She's in the kind of creative art uh, kind of field. And uh, because she did a late project till about 2, 3 a.m., the next day she didn't go in, but I didn't know that. And then when you try to connect um, in disaster, it doesn't happen. So for two days, I didn't know whether she was alive or dead. Finally, we reconnected, and I knew she was fine because she didn't go into work. Two weeks later, I had a PTSD moment. 
I was just like shaking when I was taking shower and I was sobbing, 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 you know, in tears because I was thinking, what if it was in New York but it happened in Los Angeles? I was like at that point literally stuck in my nest, middle of my doctoral program, and I cannot move one inch forward. I'm just stuck there. I'm just waiting for my daughter to grow up. And I thought, if God ended my life right then, what would I say before, you know, before uh, him? And he probably asked, Jenny, what have you done with your life? And at that point, I would have said, Lord, I, you know, went to school all my life, <laughs> and I tried to raise two kids. Now, when I was in my 20s, I thought I was going to do something fantastic for you. But, you know, sadly, you ended my life short, so I have nothing to show for it. So that would have been my answer. And what was interesting is that he said, well, you know, Jenny, I don't need a psychologist. And I was really, really angry. <laughs> like, why did you put me through this? I thought I was there for you, for your kingdom's sake. And you're telling me you didn't need this? So why did I go through all this suffering? I didn't need it for just have another letter or behind my name or something like that. It was that moment I realized that God was as interested in my growth as much as my children, as much as everybody else that I was thinking about in congregation. Right? Remember, I'm thinking I'm going to do psychology to save everyone, help everybody. But before I can help anybody else, God put me there for me. So I'm like, wow, USC is no object, right? no obstacle for God. He put me there for my growth. And I'm stuck in that nest for my own good. <laughs> and literally what I learned in that moment was as much as my daughters had to stay attached to me as little kids to survive, I need to stay attached to God to live. So my survival nine years into USC was just hanging on to that cliff every day. So what I learned, you know, the degree was just a bonus. What I learned in nine years is just stay attached to him. And then... It dawned on me. Regenerated self is not I mode, but we mode. Okay, remember I gave you the homework? Which side does God land on? The individualism or collectivism? And I'm going to unpack this about the we mode a little bit. Now, do we have the sound system yet? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> you want to try it? Okay. You're going to have to raise the volume. <laughs> Go ahead and then forward to the second place, and I'll just explain. So that swan feather, I know you didn't get to catch that clip. You know, mother was trying to bring that swan, and she's talking about how the swan, actually the duck stretched her neck and became the, the goose, right? <laughs> But she, when she landed in the immigration office, the only thing she could have was the feather, you know, because they can't bring any livestock, right? <laughs> but with that feather, the feather, the swan feather is a symbol, symbol of mom's good intention and hope. So hold on to that. And you know, the, if you read or you know, saw the movie, each daughter and mother's story, right? Each of them, the mother, uh, each mother has this good intention, right? 
hopes, not only for herself, but also for her daughters, right? And this is the American dream. All our immigrant parents came to this country with that hope and dream. They may have not given you a swan feather, but it was very symbolic, right? They have a hope and dream for you. So I want you to kind of watch what happens. Okay. So this is Leah's marriage and describing mother's story. So this, you know, movie, I know some of you have seen this before. The question I have for you is they use this term spirit over and over and over again. Now, what do you think the spirit is referring to? Because mom says she didn't have a spirit to give her daughter. That's why the daughter, even though on so many levels, different marriage, and yet the same guy, right? Same mean guy who's disrespectful. So how is this possible? I think that's the mystery of this novel, right? It's showing the generational transmission. The moms came because they wanted to leave all their trauma behind, forget the past, and they wanted to have a brand new start, right? That's why they crossed the Pacific Ocean, come to a foreign land to start all over. And when their daughter, 20 years later, grow up, right? Get married and somehow unconsciously, because I'm sure mothers never taught them to pick this kind of guy. But this is why mothers' eyes are opening, right? How is it possible that you pick the same guy? Why? What do you think? How does the pattern repeat like this? Just, you know, hypothetically, just even in this dramatization. One clue is the spirit. She keeps saying that spirit. Her mom's spirit died with the baby. If you substitute the word self, makes sense, right? Her self died. Her emotion is buried. Trauma, right? The self died with the baby. So mom had no self to give to her daughter. The daughter grows up with no self. The mother had no self. And when you have no self, she attracted to somebody who is full of himself. <laughs> yeah? That's how it happened. So this is kind of really interesting, right? So I was going to start today with that to just kind of help you know help you see a little bit how trauma, emotion, memory is buried. We lock them away and throw away the keys, but they still sit by us somehow, because who we are hasn't changed, right? Even if we try to bury our emotion and bury our memory and our pain. This is why I think, um, you know, for me, the psychology and theology where it overlap is that God is intimately interested in our transformation. When he wanted to give us new life, he, he, he wanted to restore us, save us. Salvation includes the whole entire sanctification process. So salvation is just not that moment that I am saved as a sinner, but he saved us so that we could be in relationship with him. And then, remember I told you how babies grow in the context of relationship? If we grow deeply attached to God, we grow in him. We will have not less of me, but more of me. 
right? So this picture of attachment, this is a picture of me staying attached to God, but so are my daughters. And literally, my daughters and I grew together in my doctoral program at USC. And what I learned from this process, the next slide, is that I wanted to bear a lot of fruit. And before that event in 9-11, I used to think that I had to produce fruit. How many of you guys read this passage and say, I have to produce? If you have a chance, I'm going to you know, recommend to you, especially during this you know, Good Friday and Easter, read John 15 multiple times and count how many times he says, he says remain in me, remain in me, remain in me. Over and over and over again. God's will. You ask me what God's will is? Remain in me. Be centered in me. And then he will give everything, honestly. My story is that he didn't take anything away. In fact, he gave more than I asked for. I never imagined that I would be a professor. That wasn't my goal, you know? I was just going to help my husband in ministry. That's why I entered into psychology. You know, but... Um, I was really dissatisfied when I was doing private practice. Um, the West, I mean, for me, the Western psychology, it had its limitation. It was a Western product. So when I used to work uh, in trying to help people grow and doing in-depth kind of long-term work, I wasn't sure if I was helping them become better, whoever God created them to be, or just better American. <laughs> Right? If psychology is an American product, if it hasn't really regenerated through cultural lens, then it's just one particularity I am reproducing. So I could no longer continue that. So after five hard years, after licensure and building my private practice, I demolished it, started all over again. And that's where my USC journey began. Doctoral program, because I wanted to just like deconstruct the theory and reconstruct what would be a way to do therapy that would be appropriate for our Asian Americans. So the cultural integration for me wasn't just the you know abstract you know interest. It was about our life, my life and my daughter's life, and it was all my patients and my congregation. How do we do this theologically and psychologically? That makes sense. So that was search for me. Yeah. But one truth that I learned while I was at USC is that God wasn't giving up on me. You know, that 9-11 story, he was asking me, okay, because every day, without perfect nanny landing on my front door, I was going to give myself up. I told him, if you don't send me the perfect nanny, I'm giving up. Because like, every day I was like, is that going to be my daughters or is that going to be me? Is that going to be me or is that going to be you? Right? Which is it going to be? And he would not let me give myself up or my kids. So I'm just stuck. And there's no nanny. So like four years stuck. Seemed like nothing. But if you count those days, 365 times four, that's at least over 1,000 days. I'm just like going crazy. Right? Because there's no way I could go to school. I cannot finish anything. I'm just like stuck. I couldn't even get out the door with two kids to go grocery shopping, let alone, you know, get my degree done. But that 9-11 story he asked me was, um, do you really think, okay, you think that you love your daughters? Yeah, of course. But do you think you love them, you know, love them more than I do? Probably not. So you, as wicked and, you know, sinful, will love your children and, you know, will not give scorpion even they ask for bread. How much more, right? God said, I would, right, 
love your children. And then he turned it around and asked, can you love yourself as much as you love your kids? And I really could not say at that point that I honestly love them. I mean, I love myself the same way. Because all my role model, my maternal grandmother, my mother, one just worked all, all her life, another just raised kids all her life. So I had the conflict of both in me. That I tried to be superwoman, right? Not because I wanted to, but I was trying to do both women in one body, and I couldn't do it. So I was stuck, and I didn't know what to do. And his answer was, basically, he was telling me that the way he called me in my 20s had not changed just because I became wife or pastor's wife or mother. His call on me, on my life, was the same. I was the one who was constantly saying, I'm going to give up. <laughs> I'm going to give up my dream. I'm going to give myself up. I'm going to give all this up, and I'm just going to take care of the kids, or I'm going to serve my you know, husband and the church. And I thought that's what God wanted, but he wouldn't let me give myself up. You know what I mean? It's kind of weird, because I wanted to throw it away, but he would, he would not, so I'm just stuck there. The 9-11, I think when I finally read this, I realized I don't get to produce. Read that passage, and it reads like this. Um, I just took the part that, that just really um, struck me when I finally just, you know, I didn't read it with my head, it just resonated and rang through my body. When I finally read this and heard it for the, you know, for the first time. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man or woman remains in me, and I am in him or her, she will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So this says, just remain in me. You stay attached, and I will produce. <laughs> Who gets to produce? He will. So my job was to just stay attached. Just like my kids just had to stay attached and they're growing, right? So how many times do you feel like, I have to do something great for God, right? We're so grateful for what he has done for us, and now we have to produce all this stuff. What he cares about first and foremost is that you remain in him. And then the fruits just come. And that's exactly what happened. So the, after that moment, after the 9-11, I, I didn't go, whether I should or shouldn't, right, finish my degree, it just was when. And when it was his time. And sure enough, my daughter was four, she was preschool, and I finished the rest. The rest is a history. As soon as I was done, he started me on the path of teaching. So he had a plan. I was the one who was resisting him because I didn't see myself part of that equation. So what I learned through this process was that Sanctification, it's interesting that society and culture, and I was thinking through pre-modern period, if you think about the medieval, in the medieval era, people didn't have a self, right? They didn't talk about self. It was a very much God-centered worldview, right? Where, you know, if you're born as a son of a shoemaker, you became a shoemaker. If you're, you know, parents were a farmer, you'll be a farmer, <laughs> you'll be a peasant. So whatever station you're born in, you were stuck there, right? Very little movement in society. So in that kind of medieval era, pre-modern era, we didn't talk about self. There was no self. So a lot of the you know, sort of Confucianistic, that 400, 500 years of uh, Neo-Confucianism in Korea is a feudalism, right? Agricultural-based, land ownership, 
So it was really like the feudalistic society where there is really no self. That's like the you know, uh, Victorian era when you read a uh, Jane Austen novel where women do not have any right property rights. Uh, they're landlords who have to take care of all the surface on their land, right? That's the kind of mindset of that era. So that's why your parents didn't really obsessed on the self, right? Enlightenment comes in the West, and then there's self-focus, and that's, I think, the modern era. But ironically, you know what happened at the end of modernism? World War II, in Europe, basically we have postmodern thought. Postmodern just means end of modern. So end of modern is death of self, right? If you have studied in college, any postmodern literature is death, like a Foucault and all that, right? So we've gone from no self in the, the pre-modern to this, all this focusing on the self in the modern, and it comes to no self again. So the culture, as I see the East and the West and all these different historical time periods, we just swung one end to the other end, but we still come back with no self. Yeah? What's interesting is that my story, in a nuts, you know, I'm just trying to sum this up really quickly, and that is I've internalized both in the traditional way as well as the modern way. Either I was kind of like fighting the oil and water. Is it going to be self or no self, right? And that was my battle all the way through. I was say to my 30s and close to my 40s. And what I discovered is that God was interested in my self-growth, and that was revolutionary for me. I thought that God didn't care about like my self-growth. I thought it was all about everyone else's growth, right? Ministry was all about sacrifice and having everyone grow. But if God says that I came to give you life, not just any life, but abundant life, have you really sit and thought about what that means to have an abundant life? That means that He's very much interested in your growth, and that you thrive. Now, what's interesting about God's kingdom is that I told you that I didn't produce a fruit, but I remained in him. I stayed attached to him. As I grew, my children benefited. <laughs> and as I grew, my congregation benefited. And then my patient, then my students. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I focused on my growth, and everybody else get to eat off the fruit. <laughs> but I didn't produce it. <laughs> You know what I mean? I just stayed attached to him. So this was the homework, right? I asked you to think about the traditional society or the pre-modern sort of mentality was a communal self, right? Focus on other than the self. You know, communistic country was all about other, putting other over the self. And then all the Korean nationalism and the rapid growth in Korea, the way they modernized was about country first. And that was your parents' and grandparents' generation, right? So there are parents' really heavy focus on the other, not on the self. Then you come to U.S., and it's all about individual expression and individual. We're at the, at the cent, you know, center of the individualism, right? So which is it, traditional or modern? Other or self? Which, you know, which side do you think God comes down on? Have you thought about this all week? <laughs> you learned from Justin. <laughs> you got wise. <laughs> yes, but you know, um, you're right. 
we need both because um, obviously, you know, um, we're all created in the image of God in some way. The um, you know, Korean culture as well as American culture is reflecting, you know. But because of our sinful nature, I think we tend to exaggerate into an extreme. And so there's that danger. So what I think of is both the individual and the other orientation need regeneration. You know, like when we came to Christ, all our sinfulness had to be, right? So to die with Christ and we had to be reborn, the new self. So in, in just as, you know, every individual could have that sin, culture can be sinful too. And because there's an equalizer, I think there's just as much pathology in American culture as there's Korean culture. So I say it's an equal opportunity. There's pathology everywhere, <laughs> right? So we are all in need of Savior, individual and self, and family. So look, listen to this. This is kind of interesting quote. Um, this was at the turn of the middle of the uh, 19th century, written by a French socialist political theorist in 18... Um, he, he resided in 1805 through 1859. And he's describing individualism as he saw it in U.S. as he was visiting. He said, They owe nothing to any man. They expect nothing from any man. They acquire the habit of always considering themselves as standing alone and they imagine that their whole destiny is in their own hands. Each person withdrawn into himself behaves as though he is a stranger to the destiny of all the others. And if on these terms there remains a sense of family, there no longer remains a sense of society. That's American radical individualism described in the mid-19th century. You know, and this is why the guys who were going to the gold rush had a campaign, you lend nothing and borrow nothing. <laughs> this man was self-sufficient and carried everything on his own back. That's American, you know, can-do attitude. There's a lot that, you know, we may accomplish with this, but there is a cost for that, right? We have now no sense of community whatsoever. I live in the suburb, I don't know my neighbors. It's kind of sad. Kids grow up now, no community. And in some ways, so we gather in the church, right? We you know, commute all over the place to hold on to little bits of that sense of community because we have lost all of it. So is it going to be me? Is it going to be we, right? I love it how you just flip that, me and we. But how do we integrate? It seems like we, we go from one extreme to the other extreme. You know, it's, it's either to, easier to do that. Oil or water, but not really mix. How do we mix it? How do we integrate? Because we, we believe the answer is God cares about both. But how do, we, how do we regenerate self and other? How do we regenerate self and community in a way that bears image of God, right? The characteristic of God. I think what has happened in American evangelical community now with extreme indi radical individualism, right? In the 19th century to you know, these days, even in terms of what's happening in the church, there is no longer organized religion. You know, like church is disappearing, it's shrinking. People are anti-religion. Religion represents organization. With the extreme individualism, what we have is spirituality. Everybody does spirituality. It's kind of interesting, right? Because in, in, when we do the survey in this country, religion is decreasing, and yet spirituality is on the rise. People don't go to church, they just do their own spirituality. Individual thing. I do my own thing. 
I mean, I could go to the beach and worship God alone or go to the mountain and hike. It was interesting when I went to visit Korea. All these elderly people on Sunday, instead of going to church, they're in hiking gear, right, in the subway, going into the mountain. <laughs> right? Why bother? Go to church. People are just fighting, right? You could just go to nature, and nature doesn't fight you back. <laughs> you could just relax. You could kill two birds with one stone. And literally, they worship stone, right? <laughs> See what I'm saying? So that's, that's what happened at the extreme end of individualism, that we have even gone into this individual spirituality. And this is what makes it so hard in the church. Everybody have their own thoughts. And with all this information and technology, we're bombarded with knowledge, with the heads puffed up and very little heart. We don't know how to do collective or community anymore, right? So... I started reflecting on what it means to really reflect the character of God, the reign of God, or the kingdom of heaven. That what it would be like if we were to regenerate and transform self and community in a way that we are in partnership with God in creating a people whose character reflect God's character. So to speed things up quickly, I would propose to you my sort of a renewed vision, and this is not new. Christ-centered maturity really means that we are fully integrating self and other in Christ, right? Now, I know this is just, you know, what you know. First and second commandment. First two, wraps everything up. It says, love God with all your heart, mind and soul, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So this is what I was describing earlier, what I learned. I mean, I knew this in my head, but I didn't really understand it here. That God is interested. If I am in love with God, he's interested in 100% me, not 50% me and then maybe 50% my kids, or 80% kids and 20% me. At the time, I think I was going more like maybe 0.1% me and everything else, 99% my kids. Because that's what I saw my grandmother do, right? I thought, that's what it means to be a mother. Remember all my story of successful women? They were all going to just give up and go home and raise kids. Because that's what we grew up watching. That was just implicit, what good mothers do. So I was struggling with, like, why did I get education? I don't know how to do career woman and be a, you know, 100% mom, right? So it's like, that's what the struggle was. And I realized, in, on Earth, because we are finite, the fixed quantity, if you think about it, we go like this. What One goes up, the other one has to come down. So, you know, when I do like a premarital or marital um, therapy, I ask them, you know, what is your equation of what it means to have a good marriage? Two people come together. Is that half plus half equals one? Is that your math? Half plus half? It should be about 50% you. Okay, so you're getting married. 100% me. <laughs> so, so, all right. <laughs> You've been paying attention. But how do you do that mathematically? It's one times one equals one. Oh, it's not half plus half. It's not even three quarter plus one quarter. One times one equals one. That represented in Trinity. One times one times one equals one. Your Trinity is the hardest concept to ever explain. How is it possible? Three Persons in one. Like a, you know, they're one. 
Father God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they're 100%. You wouldn't say that Jesus is half of God the Father. No, right? They're all each 100%. And yet represented as a whole one. One God. See? It is possible. So whether you're single or married, you know what I tell people? Your job is to grow. <laughs> Best you can. Because the level of your health is how you're going to attract your partner. Remember, I, I, during the... You know, meal. I, I was sharing how people marry. You know, birds of feather flock together. So similar people attracted to each other, and then psychologically marry opposite. Then we go back to the same level of health psychologically. So if you are healthy, you wouldn't be attracted to somebody who's really dysfunctional. Even at first, you're fooled. You're not going to stick stay with this person, right? But if you're healthy, you're going to find people who are at the same level of health. So this is the story of Leah. When herself was this low, she has somebody who was just puffed up like this. But if you do work with someone like that, underneath is a scared guy. And he just has to hold that power with money and power, right? So they're opposite end, and yet the same level of psychological, emotional health. So... You know, she had to grow 100% in order to find somebody at that health level. So this is a task, whether we're single, married, mother, or childless, right? All of us have to all work on growing. This is what the sanctification is about. And this is where psychology and theology overlap. Ministry is about growing people. Not just church building, right? It's about growth of people, and that's what God is interested in. And so there's the overlap. So if we take this model that God is interested in, only in God's kingdom, on earth, it's like one goes up, the other go down. This is why we go into this power struggle, right? But in God's kingdom, I grow, you grow, we all grow, right? Simultaneously. That's the kingdom of God. That's God's church. We all grow together. So how do we grow together? I think this is a homework now. So, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, um, in our Presbyterian church, uh, babies go through infant baptisms, the parents dedicate, and when they grow up old enough, they do the confirmation. So my daughter, younger daughter, before she went off to college, she did the confirmation, and uh, during the summer, when they're doing that, uh, they do the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I don't know if you're familiar with this. The first question in that um, study asked this, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is our life, purpose, and meaning. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is what God desires, that we live God-centered life, not self-centered life. Remember I told you, the modern era, the tyranny of the modern right now is a self-centeredness, and this is why the church is all destroyed. The religion as we know it, you know, institution of religion is disappearing. So many seminaries are closing because there's no church to send people. It's happening all over the world right now. It's, it's, it's epidemic. But God's, you know, I, I usually explain to students, you know, what's the difference between those believers and those who do not. Secular and those with faith. It's very simple. On this side, in psychology, because all the 
modern theorists that psychology is a modern product, modern Western product. And every theorist, even if they grew up in Judaism or Christianity, left in the name of science. And it became self-centered. And so in the secular world, everything is about self-pleasure. Starting with Freud, it's about how I pleasure myself, my selfish needs. It's kind of interesting to hear that from a psychologist, right? (laughs) Because I do believe there's a place for psychology. Even psychology needs to be regenerated. Everything of earth needs regeneration in order to image him. Yeah? Self, community, uh, psychology too as a discipline. This is why I integrate psychology and theology. Right? There is something that we can learn from this knowledge. It's a general revelation that God blesses, but without regeneration, we come up with a really weird answer where we only worship self. God is radically different. Here, the West, you know, Westminster's Catechism says it's God-centeredness. So it's not self-pleasure. It's a pleasure of God that we are created. It's a pleasure of God that I exist. My purpose Life, purpose, and meaning is to glorify Him. Now that's, that, you know, I know that's kind of like overly simplistic, but I used to think that that meant only God. See, this is what I'm saying. I thought 100% Him and zero me. And it turned out, when I am centered in Him, He gave more of me, not less of me. This is, I'm a living proof, Right? With all my heart, I was trying so hard to give myself up, and he gave back to me more abundantly than I had ever imagined. Right? How many pastors' wives you know? Two kids, professor, two licenses. Right? I could not have done this, honestly. It was just every day walking out in faith and just faithful to what he has entrusted to me on my plate. I'm not suggesting that every one of you have to have PhD or you know be a professor or be a psychologist. But I think wherever you are, be the fullest you could be, because he came to give you life and life abundantly. But that his desire is that he will add us all to you, but he's a very jealous God and he wants hundred percent you. <laughs> right? He doesn't want a leftover. Trust me, I try to cheat. This is why I only went for master's degree at Fuller. Because I thought, that's good enough. I'm not doing it just for myself, you know, my name or your degree. So I'm just going to help ministries. A master's is good enough. It was fast, quick, right? Took twice as long. <laughs> like a wall of Jericho, I had to go around twice because I was going to be cheap. <laughs> God wants the best from you. Absolute best. He wants 100%, not any watered-down version. Mother, married, single, doesn't matter. So, I think the reign of God, not only the self has to be regenerated to full growth, and that's God's desire, our church, community, and society, our culture needs regeneration. So, every generation has a new task. You know, um, somebody was explaining, what is tradition? Tradition is something like this. Uh, one day a daughter was asking mom, mom, why do we always cut the end of a ham, you know, before we bake it? Because, you know, you have to kind of cut that end. So she asked mom, I'm wondering, like, does it make it, you know, more flavorful or cook better or faster? And mom, like, scratched her head and she's go, 
I don't know, honey. I, I don't know if there's any reason. I think I just did it because my mom did it. And it turned out, grandmother or great-grandmother, the oven wasn't big enough for the big pan. <laughs> that was the reason. But tradition, you know, after you pass down so many generations, they don't know why they do it. We just do it. That's the automatic process. So we have to really distill and figure out what is the core truth that we have to hold on to and how every generation have to regenerate in a way that living God, because we don't believe in a museum, okay? God is alive. He's a living me. He's not a stone. I was just demonstrating to you how he spoke to me. He does. My daughter used to ask me, how do you know, how does Samuel know it's God's voice and not somebody else, like you're hallucinating or something? You know, my answer to her was, I know it's God and not me because my thoughts are not God's thoughts. <laughs> Remember? I was just going in that one direction and God took me up, you know, completely opposite. It's like out of the blue. That's how I knew it was his thoughts and not mine. He's a living God. Your generation have a new task. I've told you that we have now more extreme individualism and in this era where people will not gather our parents' generation had it differently. They had to stick together to survive. Now we have a more fierce individualism and individual spirituality, and you have to make it relevant. You have to find a new. That's your challenge. Not to copy your parents, because that was a solution that would fit for that generation. Now you have BTS. I was watching that, and I'm like, how awesome. Korean dudes, yeah. You know? And Blackpink, and like... Awesome. You know, I'm watching them like, wow, there's hope for the new generation. They're making it, not just as a K-pop in, you know, Korea or Asia, but they're making it globally. Right? Like, that is fantastic. And you know what I'd start to dream? I wish there was a BTS and Blackpink for, you know, biblical evangelical praise team. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? That we would be that global in that kind of, like, cool way? <laughs> That's the challenge for your generation. And you could do it. <laughs> so I hope that you will go further, further than our parents' generation did. I mean, we, I mean, they really did sacrifice a lot. I mean, when I think about what they were able to achieve in such a short period of time, it's amazing. But their hope is that you would, you know, kind of rise up from their sacrifice, right? That you would do something more. Not just... Be right trapped in what they have done. So when I think about the vision, Jesus' vision of this alternative culture or alternative society and leaders, you know, Pharisee and Jesus had a very different view. It's interesting that Pharisees, they were really stuck on holiness and purity. And there's nothing wrong with holiness and purity. But they were so obsessed to the point they became exclusionary and separatist. They were obsessed in holding on to that truth to the point they just became irrelevant because they were just so exclusionary, right? Truth without grace is dead. Because truth, God didn't, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. But what does the law point to? Our sin and death. So law alone would only result in death. This is why we need the grace of God. So we have to marry grace, truth and grace together. And that's what Jesus embodied. That was his leadership, right? 
where he was merciful, just to all those who were poor and oppressed, right? All the, the social rejects. At the time when you know, nobody would invite them, Jesus did. He would go out of his way to talk to all those who were rejected. Because those who, would, who, who thought at, this, you know, at the front of the table just did not get it. Right? So he's going to go off the street and pick up the who are hungry. That's his justice, right? And his faithfulness. So he's inclusionary, not exclusionary. So my charge to you, and I will read, uh, you know, I'm going to wrap up now. I went a little bit over because I lost 15 minutes. Fair? Okay. <laughs> Jesus has, you know, uh, hope and a plan for you guys, for this generation. I, I beg to differ those who talk about the millennials and the X and so on and so forth. I think every generation is a new challenge, and you have given also new privilege and new gifts. With the technology, it can either rob us of all human relationship, or it could also create opportunity for reaching out, right? So I hope you will just thrive. You know, thrive, because that's what God came to do, to give you life, life abundantly all your gifts, all your talents, right? Grow, you know, 100% you, 100% each other, right? And even together, you know, the kingdom of God is built. So that would be my message to you. Um, Why, you know, even when you work on your self-growth and maturity, you don't have to feel guilty. This is so that I can help others as much as I have been transformed. Yeah. So this is about inside-out transformation. This isn't about just top-down, just you know, changing my thought. This is about growing the whole person. This is why I was talking about the wholeness. Jesus came that we may be whole. All of us who are broken and filled with you know, suffering, he wants to bring wholeness. Right? And I'm not just talking about just, just spiritual healing. You know? I, I think that that healing includes every aspect of ourselves including our emotion and even trauma. Yes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just give you thanks so much for your loving grace. Tomorrow is Good Friday as we remember, Lord, why you came. You came to die for our sin because you loved us so much, because we could not save ourselves. Thank you for loving us. And your mercy, because of your mercy, you desire for us to be restored, not 5%, 50%, 89%, but 100% whole. Because that's how we were created to be, to image you in wholeness. So Lord, wherever we are, whether we are single or married, or parenting, or whatever we're doing, Lord, help us. Help us to grow in you more and more each day as our children grow, that we grow, and that the body of your church will grow as well. Bless this generation, Lord, more abundantly, that we would be able to globally reach out to the world as we each work toward transformation in ourselves as well as our family and our community.
Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. <laughs>